the Future of Energy podcast from National Grid ESO. Conversations on themes from Future Energy Scenarios 2021. With Britain aiming to achieve net zero by 2050, National Grid Electricity System Operator has a big part to play in reaching this goal. How will net zero actually transform the way we get our electricity? And what role will renewable generation play in this progression? I'm Samantha Simmons, and in the latest episode of the Future of Energy podcast series, I'm talking with Network Development Manager Nick Harvey and Offshore Coordination Senior Manager Alice Etheridge from the ESO to understand exactly why renewable energy is so important to a sustainable future. Alice and Nick, welcome. Thank you. Hello. Hi to you both. Well, Alice, if I can ask you first, just how will net zero impact the electricity system? So quite significantly, the energy system is going to need to transform rapidly if the ambitious target for net zero emissions is to be met by 2050. Now, we develop our future energy scenarios every year, and they show that decarbonising energy is possible, but it will also be complex because there are many ways to reach net zero and each has their own trade-offs. People are probably aware becoming increasingly reliant on renewable generation to help reduce the carbon impact but that's less predictable than the sources of generation the network was originally designed for. And it's also located in parts of the country that are quite often far away from where the electricity will be used. So this means that capacity on the electricity transmission network that's needed to move electricity across and around the countries is really important. And today we're already seeing high levels of electricity being moved from Scotland into England, um, particularly at times of high wind and therefore high wind generation. And in future, we expect to see further significant electricity being produced by offshore wind in Scotland, new offshore wind, and that will also need to be transferred down to England. In addition, we're also seeing increased interconnection, which connects us to other European electricity markets. And these can either import the power, so bring it to Great Britain, or they can export the power and take it to that European country we're connected to. Taken together, this means that power flows will become more and more variable with higher peaks of generation, more being produced all at once, and also wide-scale adoption of renewable types of generation will bring us additional challenges to operating the system and the network. I'd echo what Alice has said there. The impact is going to be very big. We're looking to move towards more renewable sources. Um, a lot of that energy that we're talking about is you know, wind, and a lot of that is offshore wind. And if we consider where traditionally where connections have been made historically in the past compared to where they're going to be made in the future, which is, you know, a lot of the stuff offshore at the periphery of the network, that means that the network is going to have to develop to accommodate that and facilitate those new connections of energy. And Nick, just how much renewable generation will Great Britain need? It's going to need a lot. There are going to be two significant sources of renewable energy moving forward. That's going to be solar and wind energy. Currently, we have around 13 gigawatts of solar generation, 10 gigawatts of offshore wind and 13 gigawatts of onshore wind. But through consultation with stakeholders and looking at the holistic requirements in our energy scenarios, we believe that there are going to be significant increases in those levels of renewable energy that are required to connect to the uh, transmission system. In all of the scenarios, offshore wind makes up over half of the electricity supply by the late 2030s, and wind and solar will provide at least 78% of generation output by 2050. In one of the scenarios, consumer transformation, we see maximum capacity levels of offshore wind of 113 gigawatts 
by 2050. So we see the rise of renewables, that there is also a need for fossil fuel generation. There's still a requirement currently, but that's going to decline. Coal generation will continue to decrease as we move forward with coal-fired generation plant coming off the system by 2023. Connecting these high volumes of new renewable generation, particularly offshore wind, to the electricity system will be challenging in the short term, going back to the network challenge that I talked about earlier. And then also on top of this, we need to think about how we're going to operate the transmission network carbon-free by 2025, which is an ESO ambition. And with that, it means that we have to find alternative sources of inertia that will be a commodity that we need to source, which used to be provided by sources like coal-fired power stations. And it's a product that's required to help with an issue called the rate of change of frequency that can occur on the system should there be a sort of fault or disturbance on the network. We need to be able to deal with that. And inertia is one of the products that we need to do that. So that's something that we're having to look into. Many generators, as I've said, on the electricity grid have spinning parts. They're heavy, they rotate at the right frequency to help the balance of supply and demand and can spin faster or slower if needed. And the kinetic energy stored in these spinning parts is the inertia that I mentioned earlier. And if there is a sudden change of uh, system frequency, these parts will carry on spinning even if the generator itself has lost power and it slows the rate of change of frequency in a controlled way, which helps the control room restore the balance. This means that we'll have to have inertia that will enable us to maintain a stable system. Can you explain a little bit more about what inertia is and why it's so important? Yeah, inertia is something that occurs physically on the transmission system. Historically, we've got inertia through conventional coal or gas-fired power stations. And what it relates to is having a large spinning mass within the generator um, through the turbine, which is continually going around at system frequency, spinning really fast. As we're producing electricity, it continues to spin. What that does is it helps maintain system frequency. The speed at which it's rotating helps to maintain the frequency of the network. Should there be a disturbance on the network, like a fault or a generator failing, that spinning mass still has kinetic energy and will continue to spin. And what that is providing is that inertia to keep that frequency close to what it was before the fault. So it helps arrest any rate of change of frequency. So if we think about moving towards renewable sources and wind farms, the technology that's involved with wind farms is, is different to what we see with conventional coal or gas-fired power stations, and we don't have this large spinning mass. So it's not able to provide the levels of inertia that we would see through the historic plant that we've seen on the system. Where we move to with that is as we're losing more coal and gas from the system and we're getting more wind onto the system, we need to procure services that will actually replace that inertia that's been lost on the transmission system. Alice? If I can go back to looking at how much renewable generation we'll need in Great Britain to reach net zero by 2050, and Nick set that out really well. I think the thing that jumps out to me is both those very high levels of capacity. So I'm focused on offshore wind and going from the 10 gigawatts we have today to the 100 plus we may need by 2050. That's quite a significant increase at sort of 100 gigawatts in 30 years. There's that element both of sort of the higher capacities, but also the rate we're going to need to have that generation rolled out in order to get to them by 2050. 
And Alice, how does the ESO prepare for this future? Part of our role is to assess and make recommendations for reinforcing the electricity system to meet our customers' requirements economically and efficiently. So we do this in three stages. So the future energy scenarios, which we've already talked about, represents the first stage. And this sets out a range of credible pathways for the future of energy from today to 2050. And the future energy scenarios, which we refer to as the FES, represents an unconstrained view of the world, which means that networks, capacity and capability are not considered in looking at what that generation and demand might look like. The second stage determines the network's current capability and the future requirements using the FES as an input. And this is set out in our document, the Electricity 10-Year Statement. And then finally, we evaluate the network development options and publish investment recommendations in the Network Options Assessment Report. And that uses both the FES and the Electricity 10-Year Statement, which we often shorten to call the ETIS, as inputs and performs an economic assessment according to what's called a least worst regrets methodology. So as it sounds, in an uncertain future, which is going to give you the least worst outcome economically in in money terms. And so this will give a recommendation on the best course of action on reinforcing the transmission system for the next year. As I've said, it's really focused on providing the most economic and efficient outcome considering the range of uncertainty in the scenarios. So to supplement that, we publish the system operability framework, and that takes a holistic view of the changing energy landscape and assesses the future operation of the electricity network. And the system operability framework combines insight from the FES with a programme of technical investments that identify medium term and longer term requirements for operability. And we're sort of wrecking, as you may have gathered, the electricity system is facing new challenges driven by the increasing renewable generation. And we're looking for new solutions to those challenges through some learning by doing projects that we're carrying out called the NOAA Pathfinder projects. Nick? From my perspective, this is something that I'm heavily involved with and just very high level, I would say that the flow is those future energy scenarios that give us that view of the world without any sort of spatial constraints. That then goes into the ETIS publication, which looks at with all of that energy, where it connects, how that impacts the network, what that means in terms of flows, where we see shortfalls. That's where the network options assessment process comes into play, the NOAA. And that's the process by which we take various options to look at how we can improve the network and we evaluate what is the most recommended solution to ensure that we have that right balance between network investment and taking network constraints. All of those documents that I've mentioned, there are publications that are on our website and uh, yeah, you know, take a look. A lot of time and efforts put into those documents. They're very insightful, you know, well worth a read. So, Nick, what have ETIS and NOAA actually shown to date? For ETIS and NOAA, in terms of the move towards net zero over the next decade, the GB transmission system is going to face growing needs. There's no doubt about that. In terms of the ETIS 2020, the increase in quantities of generation in Scotland will more than double the north to south um, transfer. We're going to see increases in wind generation connecting offshore in the north around Scotland, which is going to transfer through that Scottish to act to England boundary, and it's going to increase the transfer requirements within the Midlands also. We also expect to see a large increase in generation off East Anglia, which is going to require increased network reinforcement to take that energy from the periphery of the network through the areas that it passes through to the load centres that we see across the country. In London and the south of England, Again, we're going to see significant reinforcement requirements to allow for interconnection to Europe 
And with all of this work, with all of this additional generation capacity, the ability for the network to cope in terms of its overall capacity is going to be tested. What we need to do is look at what we need to do to, to manage that um, in terms of providing investment signals, in terms of making connections onto the transmission system. And we know that constraints are expected to increase due to high flows across the transmission system if no action is taken over the next 10 years. Based on that, the latest NOAA iteration recommended you know, over £16 billion worth of investment into the mid-2030s to accommodate the additional generation that's going to be connected and to look to manage those increases in potential constraint costs. We've identified the need for four Anglo-Scottish subsea reinforcements along the east coast of GB, as well as several large onshore reinforcements which will combine to facilitate north to south power flows. Last year in the southeast of England, we recommended a new transmission route between Suffolk and Kent and a new circuit from Bramford to Twinstead. This year, our analysis shows the need for these links and three further new onshore transmission circuit routes in the southeast from Norfolk to Kent to alleviate increased network constraints. We also see significant value in pursuing four ESO-led commercial solutions across the north of England and Scotland, and also in the southeast coast region, providing up to £2.1 billion of consumer savings. Alice? Nick's talked extensively about what the ETIS and the NOAA have shown so far. We're also doing additional activities, which for me is particularly focused around connecting the levels of offshore wind that are being proposed that help us think about the impact, not just on consumers, on their costs, but also on the environment and communities that are close to that infrastructure. And Alice, tell us more about what the NOAA pathfinders are actually trying to achieve. Ultimately, we want to find innovative new ways to operate the electricity system of both today and tomorrow and keep the costs of doing that down for consumers. So the Pathfinder approach involves identifying specific needs relating to challenges that are emerging on the system, but also considering innovative solutions that look more broadly than we currently do in our network development process. So this is sort of laying the groundwork for changing the network options assessment process, the NOAA, by getting more people involved and opening up new ways for the industry to help us meet the needs of the system. They're looking in at a number of areas. So that includes thermal, which is sort of making sure that the network has enough capacity to transport the electricity. Voltage, there's a level at which voltage needs to be kept at, looking at what other ways we can do that to the current ways. And then also how we can manage and make the system as stable as possible, again, through more innovative ways. So we're taking a learning by doing approach. And in doing that, we're engaging solution providers in an ongoing conversation about how we can improve tender processes for long-term contract opportunities. And this is going to help us attract competitive and innovative service proposals, and hopefully leading to the contracts for the services we need. We run one of these already, so our stability pathfinder. That is about creating a market for inertia and other stability services. It's the first of its kind anywhere in the world and is a huge step forward in our ambition to be able to operate the electricity system in Great Britain carbon-free by 2025. And through that tender, the stability tender, we've procured the equivalent amount of inertia as would have been provided by around five coal-fired power stations. And in the process, we'll save consumers up to £128 million over six years. 
I think the pathfinders are a new and an innovative way of procuring services on the transmission system. And I think I've been blown away by the appetite for the market to get involved in these areas and looking at the range of solutions that have been put forward to manage some of the challenges that we have around managing the network, you know, through thermal voltage and stability constraints. It's been really pleasing to see that there are opportunities out there for companies to get involved and ultimately the whole aim of this is a to have the service provision that we need to operate the network but also to ensure that we're deriving the best value for consumers so yeah it's it, it's a win-win in my view and alice with such a large amount of offshore wind to connect how do you ensure that this can be done effectively with as little disruption to local communities as possible so as we talked about earlier there's quite a significant increase in offshore wind from the 10 gigawatts we have now to what may be over 100 gigawatts in 2050. Between now and then, there's also a government target for 40 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2030. And so obviously that's 30 gigawatts increase within the next 10 years. Meeting that and making sure that we've got the network in place and we're set up to operate has some challenges because it's going to require infrastructure to bring the power onshore um, and, and, as we talked about, move it from coastal landing points to demand centres. And we're working on a, doing a piece of work at the moment to really look at how that can be achieved whilst minimising the impact on three factors, on the consumer through the cost that it costs to them of the network, to the environment around which the cables will travel through, and then also the coastal communities where the, the onshore infrastructure has to go. We have a, a project called the Offshore Coordination Project um, in which we're working as part of a government project um, on the offshore transmission network review to look both in the sort of short, medium and long term at how we can connect that offshore wind and minimise the impact on those three elements. We've done work so far and that has shown that adopting a, an integrated and coordinated approach for offshore projects, which includes both offshore wind and interconnectors with other countries uh, as soon as possible has the potential to deliver significant savings for consumers as well as environmental and social benefits. So Nick, tell us what happens when it's actually not windy? How do you then still meet demand? Well, the role of electricity generation within the whole energy system is changing. Historically, it has been sufficient to deliver energy to meet demand and security of supply. However, in future, the electricity system will be supplier-led, meaning it will not be consumer-led where we have to react to meet demand and maintain security of supply. As we've seen in Texas this year, extreme weather events can be extremely challenging for the energy system and careful planning is required to ensure we can move through those periods. So one of the things for the ESO is it's essential that we have flexibility that's flexibility in being able to operate the energy system when the supply and demand of energy needs balance over different timescales. Some of these flexibility solutions are at times where there's excess generation, we can potentially utilise batteries, which can typically store hours worth of um, energy over periods of time where it's required. And then also during those sorts of periods, we can use things like electrolysis plants to produce hydrogen, which could be used as a, a long term store of energy. Also, we've got the ability to flow that excess energy to other countries through interconnectors. We have those signals to align demand with these generation peaks. Conversely, at times of low renewable output, demand can be turned down 
as one option. So we've got potential flexibility with demand. Batteries will be able to discharge and interconnectors will be able to bring power generation from Europe to our shores and hydrogen power generation will also be able to kick into action. So large scale interseasonal energy storage is also essential to meet net zero and our net zero scenarios use hydrogen to meet this need. No sites currently exist, so the right policy and economic incentives for investment are needed for this to happen as we look forward. I think Nick's covered it really well there. It is all about just having that diversity so that if you're not able to source the electricity from one sort of generation, you've got other options to be able to do that. And having those options that are flexible to be able to flex the demand in some occasions to meet that supply. Okay, well, Alice and Nick, thank you so much for joining us today and for your excellent insights on transforming the electricity network with renewables. Thanks to you for listening today. There will be another Future of Energy podcast soon. For more information on our future energy scenarios, head to our website, nationalgrideso.com. Bye for now.